The day before Valentine's Day, a crowd packed into an ornate ballroom at the old Finland Hotel for a historic announcement. The Butte Superfund parties have at last reached a final deal they claim will permanently clean up the mining city. Uh, this is a day that uh, I have just dreamed about, quite frankly, and uh, sometimes thought it would never come. Butte Superfund coordinator John Sesso and the community at large have been awaiting this settlement for the last 13 years, after more than 30 years on the list of the most toxic sites in the nation. Right now, the public is pouring over its contents, and the county is about to vote on whether to sign it. We're keeping a close eye on what's happening on the ground. But before we get into the guts of the New Deal, it's important to take a hard look at what's on the line for Butte and the mess it's supposed to clean up. So come with me back to a cold weekday night about two years ago in November 2017. I remember it like it was yesterday. About 100 people piled into a historic theater in Uptown Butte for a rally, the likes of which I've never been to either before or since. <laughs> to kick things off, Ron Davis, who owns a Butte commercial radio station, stepped up to the podium. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and welcome to the Covalite Theater and tonight's Restore Creek Rally to get Butte back on track. Then he handed the mic to a silver-haired Catholic nun named Sister Mary Jo McDonald. And so let us pray. Sister closed her eyes and led us in a prayer to Our Lady of the Rockies, the 90-foot-tall statue of the Virgin Mary glowing on top of the Continental Divide, keeping watch over the Copper City. And so, Our Lady, we ask that you bless us. We ask that your son blesses us and continues to call each of us to the ministry of the cleanup that needs to happen in this, our community. One by one, 10 different speakers took the stage. Each spoke passionately, not about the Berkeley pit, not about the mine dumps on the Butte Hill, but about cleaning up a creek, specifically the first mile of Silverbow Creek, which long ago flowed out of the mountains, down through the mining city, and onward into the Clark Fork of the Columbia River. High school freshman Taryn Stratton held up a glass of blue Kool-Aid and said, Everyone in this room knows about the buried mine waste along Silverbow Creek. And to simply plant grass over the top of it and pretend that it's okay would be like me cleaning the house and just sweeping the dirt under the carpet. Instead of cleaning up the buried mine waste, they want us to drink the Kool-Aid by telling us everything will be okay. Then she took a theatrical swig of the blue liquid, draining the glass dry. Leaders from the local government, the Chamber of Commerce, and the university went up next and said that Butte's reputation as a dirty town is hampering its ability to reach its full potential. With Butte, we need to keep the history, but we need to lose that bad reputation. The first way we do that is we clean this crick up. David McCumber, the editor of the local newspaper, was on stage too. Well, we're here tonight to tell them no. Say it with me, no. Leaving the waste in the ground, the contamination in our water, and a sacrifice zone in the middle of our town is not good enough for Butte. The radio announcer, the nun, the teenager, the school chancellor, the newspaper editor, all were rallying in support of the grassroots Restore Our Creek Coalition and their singular vision. Most of us who live in Butte recognize the area in the distance where Blacktail Creek joins Silver Bowl Creek. On stage, a screen appears. And in a fancy promo video, 
A camera floats high above a neglected urban corridor and over barren fields with no water to be seen, well, anywhere. Imagine what a restored Silver Bowl Creek in the heart of Butte could do for all of us. The possibilities are endless and the choice is ours. Their dream is really a big, bold one because for the last 150 years, this upper stretch of creek has been closer to a nightmare, an industrial sewer ditch haunted by tons of toxic mine waste. And for a growing number of people here, that's a serious problem. MC Ron Davis again. We were called a vocal minority. To hell with that, we're the people of Butte. We're here to fight, we're gonna fight, and it's an old-fashioned street fight, and Butte loves that. For this cadre of feisty activists, and trust me, there are more, Butte's Superfund saga won't really be over until all of the mine waste in the creek corridor is gone, there's a lush park at the headwaters, and there's a stream flowing through the center of town, even if it has to be built from scratch. Give us back the waters that once shone like silver in the sun, winding through this beautiful valley. At the rally, I was mesmerized by the kaleidoscope of emotions, like anger, resentment, and hope on display. And to be honest, I didn't fully understand them all, or the nostalgia. But I had a hunch that if I was going to crack the code of Butte's Superfund cleanup, I had to find out more. It's time to get it done. Get it done. Get it done. Get her done. Time to remove the tailings, restore the creek, and get it done. I'm Nora Sachs. Welcome to Richest Hill, a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites, from Montana Public Radio. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves but drink with others. SierraNevada.com. After reporting on Superfund for several years, it's obvious to me that everyone here wants the best possible cleanup for their town. And there are very different definitions of what that means. A lot of folks in Butte are fired up about bringing the stretch of long dead creek back to life. And on the surface, I get it. Superfund is huge and complicated, full of thousands of pages of technical documents and abstract legal requirements like water quality standards. Whereas a beautiful, free-flowing stream, that's something tangible, easy to get jazzed up about. But considering how far and wide the environmental damage from mining spread, how did recreating one mile of Skinny Creek become the ruler by which Superfund is measured? And what can we discover about the cleanup from the drama over this little body of water? This is episode seven. The possibilities are endless and the choice is ours. Before wading into the creek, I wanted to learn more about some of the extensive cleanup that's already been done in Butte. So I drove straight up the hill to Walkerville. At last census, this historic hamlet had a population of 675 and one dive bar, Pisser's Palace. Usually it's so quiet up here, it feels deserted. And that's just fine with 33-year-old Clark Grant. Let's go to the right. To the right? Where are we going? Up here on Capitol Hill Street in Walkerville. What's our destination? 
Well, we're going to the little house that me and my friend Butch own. That little pink one there, no, let's go straight and then a left. Clark's day job is managing Butte's community radio station, but he spends most of his spare time doing homegrown historic preservation, trying to revive derelict buildings, like this one, a... Long abandoned mining shack on a hill of a broke downtown. He's a scruffy anarchist type, likes to do things his own way. Today, though, he's got company. Are they there? Looks like it. What do you see? Well, there's a white trailer and stuff parked out in front of the house. Looks like the government's there. Up ahead, the road is closed, and workers in bright white, full-body Tyvek suits and respirators weave between giant blue plastic tubes, tentacling out of the trailer. It feels like we're entering a quarantine scene straight out of a zombie apocalypse movie, which in this case is quite fitting. (laughs) It almost looks like there's blood splattered all over the kitchen, so call it the zombie house. Inside the weathered, crumbling cottage, it's dark enough to trip over busted floorboards and spear yourself on the rusty nails jutting from every surface. I can just make out the very creepy smiley face drawn in what I really hope is dried Kool-Aid on the refrigerator door. This is what you call a burner downer instead of a fixer upper, you know? And yet. (laughs) Yeah. Clark and Butch bought the shack, which they think was built in the 1880s, for $1,000 at a tax auction. And I'm not convinced they got a good deal. Yeah, all boarded up, broken windows, rotten floors, collapsing walls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This here can turn this house into a home. <laughs> but before it's safe to inhabit, he needs help exercising not who or whatever drew that bloody smiley face, but the real zombies. The century-old heavy metals still lurking in the attic dust. This board right here. Yeah. It's covered in it. Throw our tear off. That dust right there has got lead and arsenic in it. For sure. Yep. Chad Anderson is in charge of this program that sucks toxic dust out of people's attics and scrapes toxic soils out of people's yards. Bankrolled by Atlantic Richfield and run by the county, it's actually one of the most critical parts of Butte Superfund cleanup. See, back in the day, there was mining and smelting happening all over the populated Butte Hill and down the road in Anaconda. The waste and smelter smoke fallout, which contains poisons like lead, arsenic, and mercury, spread everywhere, all around and inside people's homes. Initially, back in the 1990s, the county's crews responded to places where kids tested scary high for lead. But the program has grown and evolved a lot over the last quarter century. Now they systematically sample soils, dust, and paint for metals. And where necessary, we'll clean up your house or yard for free. Here, you know, there's a lot of lead in the yards and a lot of arsenic and lead in the attic. So. The attic of the zombie house was no exception. Arsenic levels were double and lead was eight times over the Environmental Protection Agency's Superfund cleanup standards for Butte. That's why the guys in the white coveralls are out here today. Right now, they're firing up a sea monster-like vacuum apparatus. Its hoses snake into the attic, and its guts are inside this trailer. Okay, this is our vacuum. And basically, it starts here, and all the bigger stuff and the heavier stuff will fall into these bags here. Okay. The poisonous dust is sucked through a series of screens and filters. And then... 
This is what we call a bag house. And collected in trash can sized canisters. All the dust is caught up, caught inside here. Yep. Ultimately, it will all be sent to a crypt near town and buried, never to rise again. Butch, Clark's sage-like partner on the project, stands back and watches the crew expertly exonerate their house from its metal-ridden past. I wonder, does he have buyer's remorse? Any buyer's remorse? Well, uh, about every other day, but <laughs> but then the odd days are great, you know. So no, I'm excited about bringing this place back uh, back into use. Personally, I think the guys cleaning up all of these homes are doing hero's work. So far, they've remediated close to 1,300 contaminated yards and attics around town. Still, this Herculean task of cleaning up every polluted residence in the Butte area will likely continue for another century. And it's only one puzzle piece of a big, complicated Superfund remedy that's been underway since the 1980s. Atlantic Richfield has already spent almost $300 million on cleanup actions here, curing properties like the zombie house, capping hundreds of acres of mine dumps on the hill, and purging the city of large-scale industrial waste heaps. Hard proof of some of the tremendous progress that's been made here, especially when it comes to tackling the dirty soils and protecting public health. But while Butte is nothing like the toxic moonscape it once was, it's still no Garden of Eden. And while it's a cliche here in the West that whiskey is for drinking, water's for fighting, like we heard at the Restore Creek rally, that really is true in Butte. You're in for a street fight now, folks, because the gloves are off and Butte's coming after you. So get ready to get it done or get your ass kicked. Copious amounts of whiskey get consumed and more than anything else, Water has been at the epicenter of the most intractable Superfund dispute in the mining city. Specifically, how to protect that first stretch of Silverbow Creek from contaminated water above and below ground. According to fourth-generation Butte miner and history buff Pat Kaneen, these headwaters have long been the stuff of legend. But instead of a single meandering thread, it was more like swampy, braided wetlands. I guess to back up even before European settlers came to Summit Valley, um, the Salish Kootenai people called this area Sintopke, and that means the place where you shoot them in the head. And they were referring to the native trout that existed in the stream. It said that the fish were so big, the native people could harvest them with bows and arrows, that there were so many, they could walk across the water on their backs. But that's not exactly how Pat remembers it. When he was a kid, he and his buddies used to take a shortcut home after baseball games and hop on a pipeline over the creek. And when you, your buddy would get out there on the pipe, you'd start throwing rocks at him, trying to knock him off. <laughs> so. So eventually, you know, we all got knocked off the pipe and you'd end up in the creek and about two days later your shoelaces are gone and about a week later your shoes are gone because you fell in the creek and it was full of acidic mine water. That was in the 1970s when Silverbow Creek flowed down where the steep Butte Hill meets the flat valley below. 
And Pat says back then, it was better known by a rather unfortunate nickname. <laughs> You're going to make me say it, aren't you, Nora? Well, yeah, I mean, we called it Shit Creek. That's because in addition to all that scary mine water, for a long time, the Little Creek was also flowing with stinky, raw municipal sewage. Nothing grew on its banks. No fish swam. So there was absolutely, I mean, there was no life in that stream. It's still dead. It's just that nowadays, instead of kids being warned to stay away from the creek or dared to go near it, most people don't even know it's there. I sure didn't. Every time I went searching for this historic creek that was causing such a fuss, all I could find was an overgrown drainage ditch splicing through a bleak industrial corridor. Turned out I was in the right place all along. We're at the top of what was referred to as the Metro Storm Drain. It's now referred to as Upper Silverbow Creek. Joe Griffin is a hydrogeologist and former Superfund project manager with the State Department of Environmental Quality. He's technically retired, but is still a serious Superfund hobbyist, who is often spotted wearing a flat wool cap and a mischievous grin. So to understand how the creek got to be the way it is, and some of the complex issues surrounding it, he offered to take me on a walkabout in the dead of winter. We begin our chilly riparian journey downtown, on the south edge of the city's active open pit copper mine, next to the creek channel, which is about the width of a double-wide trailer. They planted grasses and stuff to try and make it look somewhat natural, but what do you think? Nora, doesn't it kind of look engineered? Does Does this look look like any natural stream? Not at all. I mean, partially because it's missing water, but even if it was seasonal, it's so straight. It's so carved looking. Yes, well, it is. It's an engineered channel. That's because since the late 1800s, basically until the Clean Water Act passed in 1972, this upper stretch of creek was treated as Butte's industrial colon. Mining and smelting wastes, or tailings, were slurried right into it, or piled high on its banks. The floodplain was a hot mess. Until the 1930s, that is, when this channel was constructed, in order to keep all the tailings, sediment, and water moving through all the mining operations and onward downstream. So you had highly contaminated and very acidic mine water flowing down this channel. Then in the 1950s, the Berkeley pit blasted onto the scene and changed Silverbow Creek's fate forever. Fundamentally, the colossal open pit mine severed the creek off from its natural sources high up in the mountains of the Continental Divide. By the 1980s, the creek had vanished for good. So we have rain events, or when snow's really melting, you'll see water in this channel. Otherwise, it's dry. It doesn't really start flowing again until it's confluence with another urban creek in town. But the hammered floodplain and all the heaps of antique mine tailings didn't just disappear. Whatever wasn't washed away ended up interred along the historic creek channel. So we're just kind of circling around um, the county shops and kind of headed towards the uh, Civic Center. Until a couple of years ago, Right near where Butte Civic Center stands today lay the biggest, baddest mine waste pile of all, the parrot tailings. Except you'd never know it because it was all buried under Berkeley pit rubble and iced over with county infrastructure, creating a subterranean toxic layer cake. 
one that's causing some heinous groundwater contamination. Joe takes me over to a pipe sticking out of the snow, actually a monitoring well reaching deep into the aquifer. Infamous well GS-41. Where they pump water out of the ground and it looks like blue Gatorade. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, and blue is the color of copper, so. I've seen it, and he's not exaggerating. It really does look like a fountain of cool blue Gatorade is flowing right out of the earth. To my absolute shock, Joe told me. This is the worst contaminated groundwater in Butte, for sure. It's worse than the Berkeley pit. Uh, a million parts per billion copper. And it's loaded with zinc, cadmium, arsenic, lead, and mercury. Pat Kaneen says those levels of copper can contaminate groundwater for eons. Remember that kid whose shoes were eaten by the acid in the creek? Same guy. He knows a lot about this because, until recently, he was an environmental scientist with the state of Montana. And for a decade, he helped the government and citizens decide how best to restore natural resources in Butte that were injured by the historic mining industry. When his colleague first showed him the bright blue groundwater, he thought, This jerk's pranking me. And I just thought, no way. You know, this is not real. And so I said, give me your shovel, Nick. And I took the shovel off his truck, and I put it in this bucket of blue water. This was um, a summer day. So I left the shovel in the bucket, and we went down to town pump and got a pop and came back. So five, maybe ten minutes, and I pulled the shovel out of the bucket and it's plated with copper. And I just thought, he's not pranking me. This is amazing. I had no idea, you know, and I'd lived in Butte almost my entire life and had no idea that this problem existed right in the middle of town. The problem is that these massive plumes of contaminated groundwater don't just stay put. They're traveling up towards the Earth's surface and eventually daylighting in Butte's creeks, a little ways downstream. And for a while, the state and federal environmental agencies in charge of Butte Superfund cleanup were at a stalemate over how to solve it. There was clashing science, it's super technical, but basically in 2006, EPA decided that since Atlantic Richfield would be required to collect and treat the dirty groundwater in the creek corridor forever, they would not be forced to remove the original sources of contamination. Contamination that threatens the cleanup downstream of Butte that the state of Montana has spent $150 million on. You can look at it from many different angles. And the angle that Montana took is that as long as these wastes are left in the floodplain, they'll always contaminate groundwater. And the groundwater can always get to surface water and contaminate surface water. So wouldn't you want to protect that investment with a good cleanup right here in town? Absolutely. This battle over what actually constitutes a permanent cleanup was a major reason why for 13 long years, the Superfund players were unable to reach a final deal, one that would wrap up Butte's cleanup once and for all. Pat says twice the state even walked away. I think both times when we came back to the table, there was a better cleanup ready to happen. So, you know, it's a tough process. And I'll tell you, it's not fun to go to those meetings. I mean, you know, it's pretty tense. And, um, but you know, Butte's worth it. So you go.
Recently, Governor Steve Bullock helped Butte get rid of the big, bad parrot tailings by dipping into a pot of state Superfund money intended for restoration, not basic cleanup. That move helped break the logjam and eliminate a wicked source of poison, for sure. But more than half a million cubic yards of other tailings in the creek corridor remain. The one thing we haven't talked about yet is stormwater. Okay, so while all that dirty groundwater we just talked about is a threat to water quality in Silverbow Creek, dirty stormwater that washes metal-laden sediments off the richest hill is actually the worst offender. And how to skin that cat was another epic point of contention between the Superfund parties, one that contributed to the years-long gridlock. Pat says EPA's motto for dealing with polluted stormwater runoff is to slow it down, spread it out, and soak it in. But when you look at Butte, our system is built to collect stormwater and put it in a pipe and shoot it to the creek so it doesn't soak in, so it's getting to surface water, and that's a big issue. Especially for aquatic life, here and downstream. While it's true that hundreds of acres of mine waste on the Butte Hill have been cleaned up, that was mostly done to protect humans from lead and arsenic. But there's still loads of copper and zinc left, which can be lethal to fish. The water running off those areas gets to the stream and causes that problem. So that's one of the big, I think, loopholes that have prevented a good remedy from happening in Butte. Now, over the last 20-some years, the county has come a long way in taming its stormwater beast. They've installed thousands of feet of curb and gutter, special devices to trap pollutants, and a system of culverts, forebays, and retention basins to catch and hold stormwater and drop out dirty sediments before they reach the creek. And it's done a world of good. Today, Silverbow Creek meets Montana's tough water quality standards most of the time. But during heavy rainstorms, there's still too much copper and zinc getting into the creek. There's been a long wrestling match between Superfund players over what to do about that and how much more money and effort to spend on goals that could be virtually impossible for a mountain of metal that drains to a trickle of a stream. So how clean is clean enough? Joe Griffin, the retired hydrogeologist, says when it comes to Superfund cleanups, you have to imagine a graph of work done on one axis and results on the other. And usually it, it has a curve to it. So you start out, you do the obvious things, you get big results. And through time, that curve starts to flatten off. So you do more and more and you're getting less and less result. And at what point do you say, you know, we're spending too much money for very little result? And that's, that's the reality that EPA has to live with. But he says the reality that Butte has to come to terms with is that it's always been, and still is, a mining town. So there are things like sacrifice zones that we're going to have to live with forever. The Berkeley pit is probably the biggest one. You know, we will, people will drive through Butte and they'll have one of two impressions. One is, to use Donald Trump's word, what is this shithole? <laughs> but the other one is, there are a lot of people that go, wow, this is an interesting place. I want to find out about it. I'm squarely in that second camp with Joe. Part of what makes Butte so irresistible to me 
is the messiness. Because on top of the literal environmental messes, there's a whole other layer of mess around how locals think and feel about the Superfund cleanup and what they expect. It's not just visitors who cruise into Butte and think, geez, what a dump. Plenty of Butians believe the town is a lot more polluted than it actually is and wonder things like, hey, when is the Superfund cleanup going to start? Yeah, because I don't see it. I don't see anything going on. Do you see anything going on? How did we get here? And where is here exactly? More on that after this short break. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. SierraNevada.com. It's a hot, dry summer day, and Billy Richardson is greeting customers at Suited for Success, a small nonprofit thrift store she runs in Uptown Butte. Billy is 74, with a peachy gray ponytail and gently lined face. She says she was raised here, and for a while moved around. So I've lived a lot of places, but I always come back because this is home. Butte's the last best place. Billy moved back for good in the 1980s, right around the time that Butte was declared a Superfund site. The cleanup has been shuffling forward since then, but she's still not convinced her health is protected. That's why she only drinks bottled water. I just don't do Butte water. You know, I mean, I use it to wash my clothes and take a bath in and shower in and and all that kind of stuff. And I I even cook with it, but um, I don't drink it. When I asked Billy why she doesn't think the water is safe, she said, There's a lot of metals and, and, and things that are in the water that have come from underground mining or from the pit, you know? And how do they go about sorting through all of that and making sure that, that it is pure enough for people to drink? Okay, so before anyone freaks out, Butte's drinking water hasn't come from underground sources in or near the city since the 1890s and definitely not from the Berkeley pit. Instead, our taps flow with clean water from the Big Hole River and two mountain reservoirs miles away from any mining activities. And the county recently built a state-of-the-art water treatment facility with Superfund restoration money that goes towards replacing lost resources. Billy knows about the new water treatment plant, but still believes she's at risk. Yeah. Is there anything you think that Butte Silver Bow could communicate to you about the safety of your water that would reassure you and then you would feel good about drinking it or no? Well, it's pretty hard to teach an old dog new tricks. (laughs) And she's pretty informed. Right across from her thrift shop is the Citizens Technical Environmental Committee office. CTEC is the local group charged with helping the general public understand the complexities of the Superfund process and cleanup. Like we've talked about, the cleanup has been going on in fits and starts for decades. But Billy stops in often to chat with volunteers and to ask when the cleanup is going to start. I just think that, that visually we should be able to see them working and see them doing things, you know, and we don't. The thing is, Billy's persistent doubts and fears are hardly unusual in Butte. On the one hand, 
there's documented evidence of major environmental and human health achievements. The SeaTech office is wreathed by dramatic photos of the hill before and after the cleanup. Binders of reports on the thousand-plus homes remediated for heavy metals. Health studies showing average blood lead levels. And diagrams of the Berkeley pit and why it can't overflow. But locals' experience of the cleanup and perceptions of it are a different story. Time and again, people wonder about what kinds of threats to their health and the environment linger in their midst. They ask questions not just about drinking the water, but about whether it's safe to live in their home, plant a garden, breathe the air. It's a curious combination of, I'll believe it when I see it, and I see it, but can I believe it? To get a handle on what this disconnect might be all about, I sought scholarly counsel. Dr. Lichtfeld, thank you again. I've been really excited to talk to you. Dr. Maureen Lichtfeld is a professor at Tulane University in New Orleans. I'm an environmental health scientist, uh, and I've been in this field for more than 35 years. She's worked on health studies and risk communication at Superfund sites across the country. And she says when it comes to communities like Butte, who are living near or in hazardous waste sites, it's inherently hard for agencies to communicate the environmental health risks. And it's inherently hard for locals to accept them. Critical here is that uh, people accept risks that are voluntarily much better than risks that are imposed. A voluntary risk would be getting hammered at your favorite Butte bar and then driving home. Being born in a historic mining town, however, next to ancient metallic mine dumps you didn't create? This is an imposed risk, clearly. People also tend to be more accepting of risks when they're in control of taking action to reduce them and when they're tangible and known. You can see, touch, taste, or smell them. That's not usually the case at Superfund sites. Like, there's no way for me to just look at the dust covering my attic and know whether it's hot for lead or arsenic without having it tested. And there are always other health challenges and stressors in a community that might seem unrelated, but complicate these underlying factors. All of those taint the, the fear for risk and the perception um, of the risk that exists. Um, that's difficult. There's no science behind how to make those go away. Dr. Lichtfeld says the best way to combat these inherent challenges is to create trust. That may sound squishy, but what it means is actually pretty straightforward. It is a long-standing commitment where you involve the community early and throughout. So not at the end, not at the beginning, but early at, at the design and throughout each step of the, the process, whatever that, at that process is. That's a mighty high bar for Butte, where Superfund took root more than a generation ago, when the program was in its infancy. Messaging and communication from the agency staff and technical experts in charge has been inconsistent. And over the decades, the public's trust in them and the process itself has waxed and waned. And so has involvement. Not surprisingly, going back and repairing the trust uh, is, is, is very, very difficult. And so that makes it easy for locals like Billy Richardson to be suspicious of what the experts say about drinking water or anything else and tough to accept their findings and solutions. And without that acceptance, EPA can't really call the cleanup a success, no matter how many hundreds of millions of dollars are spent. 
My big takeaways from chatting with scientist Maureen Lichtfeld were Butte's trust issues with Superfund are real. They're pretty common. And there's a bunch of reasons why they exist. They want us to drink the Kool-Aid by telling us everything will be okay. One thing I'm quite certain does not help rebuild any trust with the public or encourage involvement is a complete lack of transparency. And that exacerbated the already sticky situation here in Butte. Because of a court order that all of the Superfund dealmakers agreed to early on, in the early 2000s, these cleanup settlement negotiations were confidential. So the public had no idea what was going on behind closed doors. Now, according to a veteran EPA attorney, that's standard for these kinds of high-stakes negotiations, and necessary in order for the parties to be honest and able to trust each other. So what seems different about Butte is not the gag order per se, but the pace of these big Superfund decisions, and how long the community has been shut out from them. John Sesso says that's been frustrating for the public and the local government. In recent years, however... Unbeknownst to the public, very little negotiating was being done. Uh, We would go to these meetings and say, okay, well, we got to come to terms with this. But man, people just got uh, expert at kicking the can down the road, and it was just no progress. He's the county Superfund coordinator, who has been a key player in the cleanup here since the beginning. We caught up in his office at the courthouse back in March 2018. And John says by nature, hashing out these final cleanup agreements is really tricky and time-consuming because there are a lot of enormous judgment calls that have to be made. How clean is clean enough when you're making decisions for the, for the rest of time? Of course, because this was all under wraps for so long, the parties couldn't openly discuss the water quality issues being debated or any other cleanup dilemmas they were facing, or that... We were stuck in neutral. We were not making decisions. John said the county took some shrapnel from the public just for being in the room where nothing was happening. But it was different for the federal and state officials in charge. They could go home and put something off for three months, and their community wasn't left with the burden of no action. Around this time, we got interrupted by a pipe and drum band marching through the courthouse. We're going to have to take a little break. Can we go see that? Yeah. It was right before St. Patrick's Day in Butte, one of the most Irish cities in America. So go figure. When the bagpipes died down, Sesso said there's something that's harder to explain to those on the outside who aren't at the table. It's that while the local government is there to represent the public's best interests, at the end of the day, Superfund decisions are based not on emotions, but on science and what you can compel polluters to do under the law. And what we deserve is not in the law. That doesn't say that in the law that Butte deserves anything. But a lot of people here feel the purpose of the law is always to right the scales of justice, which have been tilted for far too long. We're not going to take anything less than the cleanup this town deserves. Because about five years ago, just as the Superfund deal negotiations were stalling out, is when the community's patience finally ran out. And they got serious about getting organized. We're here tonight to send a message. Clean it up. Get it done. Restore our crick. 78-year-old Mary Kay Craig 
wasn't on stage at that rally, but she's a card-carrying member of the Restore Our Creek Coalition. And when this flower of environmental activism began to blossom out of Butte's not exactly fertile soil, she was ecstatic. Finally, Butte has awakened from its sleep about Superfund. Now, when Mary Kay says that, I believe her. Not only is she a core creaker, she's one of a handful of locals who have been closely involved with virtually every single environmental group in town since the dawning of the Superfund era, even started one of her own. If there was anyone who could help me understand why this creek issue was catching so much fire, it was her. And if there was any way to understand Mary Kay, it was by going to church. It's Sunday morning, and we're attending Mass at St. John the Evangelist in Butte. I'm a little out of my comfort zone, but she is right at home. Do you have a favorite verse? Uh, this is this is the um, Sermon on the Mount. Oh. And um, it's just put to, to music. Uh-huh. And change around a little bit. But the next one, of course, is th- those who thirst for justice, and they shall be satisfied. And that's one I really, really like. And At first blush, Mary Kay comes across as O.G. Butte. She can spin webs of relationships going back generations, has a garden full of shamrocks, and is from a big Irish Catholic family. My dad used to say, always look out for the little guy. Her dream was to be a missionary, but she ended up in California, working in marketing for big brands like Del Monte Foods and Kashi Cereal, which my mom made me eat. After a few decades away, an abiding love for her hometown pulled her back. I decided that I would just, you know, empty bedpans if I needed to because I wanted to be here. Mary Kay returned to Butte in 1990, just as Superfund was taking off. Instead of fear and loathing, she says she felt hopeful, thought the cleanup might help the city's economy, and that it was all terribly interesting. Her response was pretty atypical. She says she found others wanting to distance themselves from a lot of these issues, feeling that there are other people who know how to handle this, and I'm not the one. But Mary Kay noticed that unlike other towns nearby, Buttes Creek was dead, that the city had the weight of the flooding Berkeley pit hanging over its head. The thing that really got to her was when folks from elsewhere in Montana called people from here Butens. As if this environment had caused us all to be dumbed down. It seemed to her like the whole right to a clean and healthful environment thing guaranteed in Montana's constitution somehow didn't apply to the island of Butte America. So instead of turning away from Superfund and all its intimidating jargon and complexity, Mary Kay leaned in. So I felt that I had some capability to be able to explain things to people. And uh, I did also see injustice. Injustice drives me crazy. First, she got a job with a nonprofit Clark Fork Coalition based in Missoula, but felt they were too focused on protecting fish instead of humans. Then she took over the Citizens Technical Environmental Committee, the only environmental group here at the time, which happened to be funded by the EPA. And she started going rogue. Mary Kay wrote op-eds about how Butte was getting a cover-up instead of a clean-up, pretty instead of permanent, a band-aid on a bullet wound. Then? Then the S started to hit the F. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty soon, Mary Kay Craig was a super polarizing figure, 
a hardcore environmentalist in a hardcore mining town. Sitting in her comfy living room, she asked me if I'm familiar with Henrik Ibsen's play called An Enemy of the People. In it, there's a doctor who tells his fellow townspeople that a tannery is poisoning their water supply and making everyone sick. Well, everybody's working at that plant, and there you, you dare not talk about uh, that being anything that makes people sick. I related to that Ibsen play better than probably anybody that ever enjoyed that play, <laughs> because the guy became the enemy of the people. Uh, but that Ibsen play really did uh, seem to personify what was happening here for me. Now, I gotta say, when Mary Kay told me she was the enemy of the people, I was taken aback. Maybe she's mellowed, but I've known her for the past couple of years as that spunky older lady, the information junkie who goes to all the boring Superfund meetings and lobbies EPA about human health concerns. For her, it's personal. She's survived both ovarian and bladder cancer, which has been linked to arsenic exposure. And she feels it's her duty to raise hell and speak up for those who can't. Instead of a bladder, she now wears a plastic pouch attached to a stoma, a tube of small intestine rerouted through an opening in her abdomen. They like to tell you it looks like a rose, and it's a, it's a red thing that's sticking out of your belly then, right? And so it looked pretty scary to me, I'll tell you. Then she told me that lots of people name them. Yeah, so I decided I would call mine Piscilla Piddles Peabody. Sorry. Sorry. That was the best I've heard in a long time. And and this is she. And she acts up. Sometimes, you know, you wonder if you shouldn't have named it Mount Vesuvius. (laughs) My dad also had bladder cancer. And it's not every day I get to hear a good joke about it. I mean, does that help? You can't laugh about these things, you know? Mary Kay had to take a step back from Superfund activism for a while both for health reasons and to lick her wounds. But out of all her peace and justice causes, it's super fun she won't give up. She has so much institutional knowledge, she feels a sense of noblesse oblige and is guided by her deep faith. Oblige, I don't mean I'm the big noble person. I mean, you've got an obligation. We are of a peace. We are all in this cosmos and part of one another. In 2014, it was all this excitement bubbling up around the first mile of Silver Row Creek that really brought her back into the fray and woke everyone else up from their Superfund slumber. Because instead of following EPA's playbook, the Restorer Creek Coalition gathered the people of Butte and asked them to imagine what they wanted to see in the center of their town. Imagine what a restored Silver Bowl Creek in the heart of Butte could do for all of us. What Mary Kay helped me realize is that for her and the other activists, most of whom are in their golden years, this isn't just a sentimental journey. For them, the Dead Creek is a symbol of decades of environmental injustice in Butte. And bringing it back to life, somehow, will be a victory. Not over righting ecological wrongs, but for the people here, and a quality of life they've never known. Because when they look east or west of Butte, they see cities like Bozeman and Missoula with thriving economies, safe, healthy environments, and cool, clear water. They have bugs around their creeks. They have little fish in their creeks. And what do we have? Toxins in our used-to-be creek. 
and um, we need that creek back. And since the final Superfund deal for the Butte Hill and this creek corridor still hasn't been signed, sealed, or delivered, they still have a shot at making their creek pipe dream come true. It's time to get it done. Get it done. Get it done. Get her done. Time to remove the tailings, restore the creek, and get it done. Thank you. They're not just shouting into the void. Against the odds, these activists are gaining real traction with Superfund officials who are in the middle of making forever decisions about the cleanup. But after being kept on the sidelines for so long, are the community's concerns really a priority for the powers that be? At the end of the day, how many of their demands will actually be met? Were they the ones that got Superfund back in gear? Or was it the EPA's new sheriff in town? Hello, Montana. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll pick it up right there next time on Richest Hill. Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Benetta and Crystal Fantasy. Special thanks to John Sesso, Chad Anderson, Eric Hassler, Clark Grant, Butch Gabrant, Joe Griffin, Pat Kaneen, Billy Richardson, Dr. Maureen Lichtfeld, Mary Kay Craig, Sister Mary Joe McDonald, Ron Davis, David McCumber, Fritz Daly, Terrence Stratton, Matt Vincent, Tom Malloy, Henry Elson, Bill McGregor, Raja Najasetti, Janice Hogan, the Citizens Technical Environmental Committee, the Restore Our Creek Coalition, Jewel Banville, Nadia White, Robin Saha, and NPR's Story Lab. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and stay up to date at ButtePodcast.org. Hey, Mom.